Let's go back over Revelation. Let's do our overview of, um, of what we've been looking at. So for those that have not been here, you may not remember this. Those that have, it'll be a help to you. Uh, the best way we can see Revelation is by seeing that God brings us through the tribulation period four different times. And um, how many think you can fill in the blanks here on the first, second, third, and fourth time? Let's try it. Ready? The opening, first of all, the first time through is chapter 6 to to 8, the opening of seven seals. That's correct. Second time is the sounding of seven trumpets. The third time is the revealing of seven personalities, or some people say personages, 12 to 14. And uh, then the fourth time is the pouring out of seven vials, chapters 15 to 19. And again, it makes sense to think of that as four times. There's a lot of things that line up. Everything does not line up perfectly uh, because there's so many layers. But there's a similarity in the Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, of the different pictures. And there are three Gospels that share a lot of similarities. And uh, uh, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called, some people call them the synoptic Gospels, as if... Uh, the, the, the fourth one doesn't line up. Uh, the truth is, the three are similar, but the fourth is another look at the same Jesus Christ and his ministry. And it's a, such a different perspective. It is hit, uh, Jesus as the Son of God that it seems to not line up. It seems to be completely different. It's just another layer, another perspective on Christ. So Revelation has that as well as you're going through. Uh, don't try to break your mind on this stuff. Let the Holy Spirit guide you and learn a little bit as you can. Um, Brother Rex sent me um, something about the uh, un, uh, Revelation Explained or something like that. And uh, the, the whole, it was just page after page of all kinds of weird drawings of, of, of diagrams and pentagrams and an airplane flying through the sky and all kinds of symbols and numbers. And it was just packed full every single page. And uh, I don't know if you've ever met people like that. I really like talking to people like that for entertainment purposes. It's a bad habit that I have. Please forgive me. But uh, you can go that direction if you want, but you end up being a crazy person. And, uh, and no one wants to hear you anyhow. So you're constantly yelling. What we're trying to do is go through slowly and come back and, and hit it a little bit and just take what you can take. I've been through it a lot. I've looked at it. I am no expert whatsoever. I am learning as I'm going. But I'm telling you, the more that you do that, the more that you go through, you find that God starts giving you little things that you can remember the next time around. And it starts piecing it all together. Let's review last week. First was in chapter, uh, chapter 12, 1 to 6, we saw a great wonder in heaven. A great wonder in heaven. And uh, that's interesting to talk about the wonder in heaven. Uh, there's signs and wonders throughout the Bible. But let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 12. Let's read 1 and 2. It says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Here is the first character or personality, the woman. And we saw last week in Genesis 37, 9 and 10, you had the sun, the moon, and the stars that are mentioned. Who in Genesis 37 is or was the sun? Anyone remember? Genesis 37? Say it out loud if you know it. 
What was it? Close? Jacob, right? Because then you had the wife was Rachel. Very good. And then you had, so you have the sun, it's Jacob. You have the moon, is Rachel. And then you have the 12 stars or sons of Jacob. So you have the sun, the moon, and the stars. And Jacob himself said that. He said, um, because Joseph had the dream, remember Joseph dreamed? And he said, I saw the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to me. And Jacob said, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed bow down to you? So he lined it up for us and told us that what, he understood what Joseph was saying, that, that Jacob and Rachel and the boys were the sun, moon, and stars. So it's interesting, but that you can see here how it connects this woman with Israel. And it says, she, verse number two, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. Now, whoever this is, she has several things that she has to be and do. She has to bring forth this man-child who is Christ. And we find that out uh, through the passage. She has to be persecuted by the dragon, the devil. She has to flee into the wilderness. She has to fly there on the wings of an eagle. And she has to be fed there for three and a half years, 1260 days. Whoever that is, and, and so the scripture would plainly say that that woman is Israel. And we can see how it took a long, travailing process of 4,000 years to deliver the Lord Jesus Christ, the man-child. The second character is the great red dragon. You see in verse number 3, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns, Upon his heads. So notice seven heads. How many horns? Ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Now, let's talk about the, uh, the, the, the perspective, the lesson tonight. And we're going to talk about how uh, Satan works and how Satan can be identified. And I hope that you'll get interested in this topic. Because if there's, if there's one thing you need to know... It's who is fighting against you. What are you actually up against? I'll give you an example. If you don't realize that you have an intestinal problem, then you'll never seek to fix it. You may think it's something else. You may just think of insides, it's all, I don't know what it is, something's wrong. But if you don't know that it's an intestinal problem, you cannot address it. It doesn't mean it'll be perfect and you know, never cause you any problems, but at least you know what's fighting you. If you know that when you get up in the morning and you don't want to go to work, you know that that thought is foolish. If you don't realize that it's fighting against you and you think, well, I don't want to go to work, so I shouldn't have to go to work. You won't fight back against that thought and you'll think that that's the way you're supposed to be. You have to know who your enemy is who your opposition is or what your opposition is so you can be properly prepared to push back against it. You ever realize that it's about to get on with you and your spouse and you realize that something is going to happen. You're going to get your, there's going to be a punch that's thrown or verbally. You realize that it's starting to heat up and things, you know what I'm saying? You ever get there? I've never personally, I have heard a lot of people talk about it. All right, so you, what do you, you ever realize that, wait, it's not, we're not really mad at each other. It's because it's so hot outside or we haven't eaten anything. 
You ever get to that? You realize, you realize that the, the opposition is actually not what I thought it was. It's something else. And it helps you to be prepared. So when we look at, at spiritual things, you have to recognize the devil is as real as your right thumb. And he's just as involved in your life. He is going to do what he has to do to bring you down. He's seeking to devour you. You have to know that. If you don't realize that you have an adversary, then you're not going to do anything to prepare to fight against him. So some of the things that you deal with in your life are the devil. But here's the thing. Satan has a desire to remain unidentified. He does not want to be identified. Why? You'll never fight against someone that you don't realize is fighting against you. There's something that we've got to make sure about Satan. You need to know this. You need to understand. He does not want you to be able to identify him because he is a deceiver and his desire is to remain undetected. Now, we saw last week when God created him, he was not Satan. He was Lucifer. He was the light bearer. According to Ezekiel 28, he was incredible. He was the most powerful. He was the highest ranking. He was beautiful. He, uh, he had the privilege of basically directing the worship of God. He was the, the anointed cherub that covereth, right? And somewhere on the line, his pride kicked in. And he began to say, I will be like the Most High. And he became God's enemy. Why? Because he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be on the same level. From that point on, Satan was bent on hating God and fighting against God. And he does whatever he can. Now, his most effective strategy, what is it? His most effective strategy is not man-to-man, toe-to-toe, straight up, throwing punches. His most effective strategy is this, imitating God and God's plan. He imitates him. And you can see that in Exodus, when Moses comes in to tell Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And he brings with him some signs and some wonders. He turns water into blood. And the Egyptian magicians say, oh, we can do that too. What does that do to Pharaoh? It, it relativizes God's power in Pharaoh's mind. Well, it can't really be God because if my guys can do that, and I know they're not a whole lot, the devil does this. The devil relativizes the work of God by imitating it. And so you might think, well, I had a prayer answered. Well, it's probably not a prayer answer. It's probably, you know, it could have been anything. It could have been just coincidence. He seeks to imitate the work of God. And thereby, he dilutes the power of God in your life. He makes you think, well, I can think of a hundred ways that could have happened. Well, maybe you're right. And you can go off the deep end thinking every time, you know, well, the, the lady smiled at me. So I must be doing something right. Or I had a flat tire. I must be doing something wrong. You can go too far with that and push that envelope. I agree with that. But, but be careful that you don't relativize everything that God could possibly be involved in. Because what you end up with is a life with no faith. And you cannot please God if you don't have faith. You don't have to believe in superstition. But you do have to believe that there is a God and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If you don't have that, you can't please God. You can't be in a good relationship with him. So the devil will come along and he will pretend and he will imitate. He will, he will say, anything you can do, I can do better. And he will lower your estimation of God's power. So he found that the greatest way to devour people is by posing, by presenting himself in a way that, that is not true 
to his nature that is not authentic. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that he is he can transform himself into an angel of light. A lot of times Christians give credit to Satan for things that he did not do. Look, look, at, look at James chapter uh, 1 very quickly as, a, as just a proof of this. James chapter 1, look at verse 14. James 1, 14. Look at verse, start with verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Yeah, you're right. God doesn't tempt man. Who tempts, who tempts man with evil? It's the devil. Well, watch what he says. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of the devil. No. Drawn away of his own lust and enticed. We say, well, who's enticing him? His own lusts are enticing him. He's drawn away. I'm not saying that Satan can't tempt you and can't put things in your way, but he doesn't have to mess with the small stuff. Why? Because your sin nature, my sin nature, has its own desires that work without Satan ever even being in, uh, around. You don't have to, to think, well, I, I, must be, I must have had some hex because of the, the Black Sabbaths my dad used to listen to in the home, and so now I have this uh, satanic hex in my life. No, you have lusts in your life. And they take care of themselves. They're drawn toward evil. You don't have to look for Satan. There's some of Satan in us. All right? So notice here, Satan doesn't need to go to the bar. Why? They've got it covered. He doesn't need to go to the casino. The lusts of men are doing just fine. He, he doesn't need to go to the, the strip clubs. The lusts of men are taking care of that. You say, well, it's an evil place. The devil really wants you to think that's where evil is. And by the way, that is evil. That is evil. Those, those, the, the lusts of men degrade them and drag them down in a vortex to nasty places. And they become animalistic. It's evil. But the, here's, here's the, 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 the thing you've got to remember. The devil doesn't have to be anywhere around for that stuff to go on. Because the old nature of man will take care of it. You know what the scary thing? You want to know where, where the devil goes? The devil is in high places. He likes, he likes uh, government. He likes things like that, authority and power. But the devil also likes to go to church. He's probably one of the most faithful people, faithful church attenders that there is. Why? Because that is where no one expects him to be. So he shows up there. For, and a lot of people can't identify the work of Satan around them. And here's why. They don't even identify him in the Bible. So let's, let's see if we can identify him. I want you to look at, uh, well, let's see here. Go to, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We, we're looking, I'm going to give you a, an idea here. And you can take this and run with it as far as it'll, as it'll go. I see some merit in it, but it's not completely fleshed out. So you, you take it and think through it and use it as a, as a possibility, as a theory. All theories have to be vetted by multiple verses of Scripture. But this one, I think it could fit, but uh, you tell me what you think. So the Bible tells us that there's three groups of people, three main groups in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He tells us that there's the Jews... And the Gentiles, and who else? 
the church. We've got three main groups of people. Jews, Gentiles, church of God. So the devil is actively working against all three of those, but he doesn't necessarily use the same tactics for all three. And I'll show you this. If you look at, uh, at we'll look at 2 Corinthians in a moment. Now, let, let, hold your place there. Would you go back with me to Luke chapter 22? Luke chapter 22. I want to hit this one first. All right, so you've got the Jews, you've got the Gentiles, the church of God. We see that Revelation 12 is as a very transparent view of how Satan attacks the Jews. He, he persecutes them and he destroys them like a hunter. And you can see throughout Scripture, uh, even in, in, in what we might call recent history in World War II, where the Gestapo were hunting and listening in walls using uh, audio devices to find Jews. That's kind of like uh, what Satan has done. He has persecuted, he's harassed, and he wants to kill them. He's like a hunter. And that's how he attacks the Jews. Revelation 12 shows us how he deals with the Jews in the tribulation period. And then you have the Gentiles. Uh, in, in Job chapter 41, which we looked at last week, you should go back and see that as a description of Leviathan, as a description of the great red dragon Satan. Now we understand. We look at it um, and, and you can say, well, that's a, a dinosaur or whatever. But there's, there's things over there things in there that tie in in a spiritual sense that do not apply to a dinosaur. And so you've got to really look at that as a, as a possibility, and I think it's a strong possibility. We're talking about Satan, the great red dragon, and how he deals with the Gentiles. In, in, in Job 41, he says he is king over all the children of pride. That is Leviathan is. And we understand that Satan fell because of envy, because of pride. And if you look at Luke 22, I want you to see how, how the Gentiles operate. Verse 24, it says, There was also a strife among them. Among whom? Among the disciples. How could there be a strife among the disciples? They were all individually called by the Lord. One of them was a devil, but we didn't even know that until the Last Supper. How could there be a strife among disciples? Hey, listen, anytime you get two people together who want the same thing, you're going to end up with strife. Even if it's we both want to serve the Lord, <laughs> you're going to end up with strife. Why? Because we're not the same. We're different. And so there's going to be what the Bible says, where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. We're supposed to be striving together for the faith of the gospel, not striving against one another. He says, there was a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest? Just something that we want to know, Lord, which one do you think will be the best? That's all we're looking for. Can you imagine asking the Lord that? Oh, I would never, ever verbalize that. I think it all day long, but I would never say it out loud where somebody could hear me. And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. We're about to go through another election cycle. It seems like we've been in a continual election cycle for years and years and years. It's going to get on. It's going to, it, it's going to be a battle royale coming up here in the next year. Why? Because that's what Gentiles do. They fight over who's in charge. Uh, they, they fight over who, who's supposed to get that promotion at work. Who's supposed to, and, and that's what we, we fight over those things. And, uh, and, and 
And the Lord says, he tells us, that's not the way I want my kingdom to be. But do you ever feel like someone has exercised lordship over you at work? You ever feel like someone has exercised their authority over you? That's the way. You ever been in the military? It's all about chain of command, right? It's all about the guy, and they have all kinds of sayings for it, right? And that's the way Gentiles interact with one another. The devil does a similar thing in that he is all about domination. He dominates people through pride as a king. This is the way you can, you, can look, you can look at a situation and you can see Satan in it. If someone is domineering, let me, let me stop and park just for a moment. God never told the husband to tell the wife to submit to him. God told the wife to submit to the husband. God never told the wife to tell the husband You're supposed to love me. God told the husband, love your wives. What does that mean? Stop reading each other's mail. Stop stop acting like you're the one that's supposed to tell them what they're supposed to do. Well, God said, yeah, let God tell them. By the way, you've been telling them for how long? How's that working out for you? How about let God tell them? Well, if I don't tell them, they're going to... No. Do you like when they mistrust that you're going to do what God told you to do? That guess what? Your spouse doesn't like when you mistrust that they're going to do what God told them to do. How about this? Everybody do what you're supposed to do. Right? I just don't, I'd rather just tell my wife, listen, God told you to submit to me. You know what that is? It's domineering. She's not under my thumb. That's why I have to say, you need to submit. Now, my wife is a very submissive wife. I mean, one one of the most submissive wives that I've ever had. Amazing. Amazing. But, but, but when you feel like you have to constantly throw your weight around, and when you have to push, remember, when you feel that, that need to dominate, you're not acting like the Lord. Now, I'm not saying you can't stand. I'm not saying this is, you can't say this is what we're going to do. But that, that need, that desire to say, I am going to get you under my thumb. Be, be careful with that. Be careful with that. There's, there's more than one way to get the job done. Be careful that the only, if the only thing you have is a hammer, then you're going to use that hammer in every situation. You've got to get some other tools in your belt. But Satan, is he dominates through pride as a king. And then 2 Corinthians. Now, let's look at 2 Corinthians. This is another, what we're trying to look at, we're, we're trying to look at devotionally or practically in our daily lives, and we're looking at the broad overview so if, if, you, if you find someone who is constantly pestering, persecuting, and hunting and looking and searching like a detective, um, that, that's a, that, it seems to be a satanic characteristic. Someone who's picking, constantly looking, searching for problems. If, you're, if you see someone who is domineering, you find it in your own heart. That's a characteristic of the devil. Now here's another one, 2 Corinthians 11. He says, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Notice that beguiled is the same, 
deceived is the same as being corrupted from simplicity. What happened? Satan offered multiple options now. All right? So when, in the garden, Eve is following, uh, following God with her husband, and then the devil comes and offers another option. All right? That second option is called corruption. Now, she didn't realize it. Simplicity was fear God, keep his commandments. But the devil makes things complicated. When people say it's complicated, it normally means it's sinful. Normally, that's what it means in relationships. It's really complicated right now. It's sinful. Simplicity is when you're not corrupted. And by the way, you're not beguiled either. Okay, so he said, for, he, here's what he means by that. The simplicity that is in Christ is possible uh, that, to be corrupted. How? For he, verse 4, he, if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. What does that mean? You'll put up with him. You'll, you'll be okay with him hanging out. Guys, you've got to keep this in mind. Now, whether, whether you want to you know, be a Baptist or you want to be whatever it is, another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. So just because someone says Jesus doesn't make it biblical, doesn't make it the simplicity that's in Christ, just because someone talks about, I can just feel the spirit, doesn't mean it's right. And you don't have to feel like you're being an ogre to say, I want to check into that. You're, you're being foolish if you just say, well, I mean, I have a friend at work. I have a neighbor. I have a, a cousin, a, you know, my mom. She just says she's filled with the Spirit. And I don't want to be judgmental. The Bible says, try the spirits, whether they be of God. Because some spirits come and say, I'm of God. How, do you, how can a person know? You've got to hold them to the Scripture. You've got to study what the characteristics are. You know, sometimes things don't pass the smell test. You know, you, you hear about the Asbury Revival, or you hear about this, and you're like, man, I, I like, I like, I, I like that, that people are interested in the Lord. But be careful that you don't just say, well, okay, then I'm going to open up my heart and my mind, and everything that they do, I can't say anything. Anyone that says... Just accept me as I am and stop criticizing me doesn't really know a lot of the Bible. Because a person that knows the Bible knows that Jesus intentionally increased the, he in, increased the intensity of doctrine as people got closer and some people walked away. You know what Jesus said? Oh, guys, don't leave. Stick around. I promise I'll be nicer. Hey, we'll, we'll even have coffee in the foyer. Please, don't leave. No, what did Jesus say? They couldn't hang. I'm going to increase the intensity of doctrine. I'm going to teach them things that are harder to accept, not harder to understand, harder to believe. Okay, and as that goes in your Christian life, you're going to watch that. If you want to go to a, a big, box, big box church, which some people call this a big box church, if you want to go to a church that's like, hey, we just don't care about all those doctrinal things. Can't we just say Jesus, Jesus? We're all about the gospel here. But didn't he say that there's another gospel? Well, let me ask you this. Who is behind all this nonsense? Satan. 
Satan, you know how Satan deals with the church of God? He deceives. He hides his identity. He deceives as an angel of light by hiding his true identity. Now look what he says, verse uh, verse 13 of chapter 11. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. That's why he said over there in Galatians, if we or an angel from heaven preached you another gospel, you might bear bear, bear with him. Don't receive it. So when we're looking at it, you say, well, I just want to get along. I don't want to be critical. You, you, you need to keep criticism in balance because the flip side of criticism, someone said, is a negative spirit. And Bible believers struggle with caustic negative spirit because you get so used to seeing so much and you can, you can divide and you can refine and you understand. And that's good. But just keep in mind, if you have... So much criticism, what you're going to do is you're going to actually play into the hands of the devil. Just like the Pharisees. The Pharisees paid tithe of mint and anise and cumin. I mean, they literally tithed on their spices in their cabinet. I don't know if you've done that yet, but they did. That's how holy and and righteous they were. You know what happened? They missed Jesus Christ standing right in front of them, the Messiah. They missed him. Why? Why? Because he did not line up exactly like they wanted. But to go to the other extreme is to be like a Sadducee and say, I don't know. I mean, hey, we all believe something generally about something religious. And it sure is good to be with you guys in this group. They don't have any idea what they're talking about. They denied the resurrection. They denied the angels and spirits. They denied everything. Why? They were materialistic. And believers, we have to be careful that we don't go to these extremes, use some wisdom and discernment, but also keep in mind that, 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 that you and I are not the litmus test. This is. And if the Bible hasn't held you accountable for something and convicted you in a while, but you sure have found ways to convict everybody else and hold them accountable, something's out of balance. So you've got to let the Bible speak to you as well. What we're talking about here is identifying Satan. Satan is going to try to deceive you in some way. If you put all those things together, you start to get a composite of Satan. He said, we're not ignorant of his devices. What is his device? It's his plan. It is the way that he is seeking to bring you and I down. We can learn about him, his works, so we're able to identify him. Now, let's go back. Let's go back to our outline. Number three is... The child. Now, we looked at a lot of this last week, but we're coming back through it again just to uh, tack her down a little bit. Look at verse number 5. Back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. And it says, And she brought forth a man-child. And here's the key mark that identifies who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now, if you would, hold your place there in Revelation. Let's look at Revelation. I'm sorry. Yeah, look at Revelation chapter 19. Look at Revelation 19. You can see here that there's two implements that the Lord uses when he comes to rule. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. So he destroys the nations at the onset, the second advent, when he comes to rule on this earth. And then he shall rule them with a rod of iron. 
the rod of iron. Go back to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, and there's a wonderful tie-in here. Psalm chapter 2, it says in verse number 7, Psalm 2, 7, I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, it is humorous to think about, but uh, sometimes people have even, you've got to be careful who you listen to. And you've got to be careful, <laughs> the teachers. We were talking about it several years ago, and a guy said to me, he said, I think that rod of iron, Brother Jamie knows about this, and it's, it's humorous. He said, I think that rod of iron, he's, he, if, you, if you study that out, it actually means a benevolent rule. And uh, I thought, I don't know what's benevolent about a rod of iron. But that's what happens when you get in there. And sometimes people are, they, you know, they don't like the idea of Jesus Christ ruling with a firm hand and knocking people in the head. But if it were your daughter that was violated, you might not have a problem with someone getting knocked in the head. Your sense of righteousness for your family is what Jesus Christ has for the entire universe. So he, when, when anything is violated in his law, he feels that same righteous indignation. And so he rules with a rod of iron. And some of you can remember back when things were not, you, you know, you didn't just get off for everything in, in our culture. And what does that do? It causes people to snap too. They actually behave and are disciplined when people are, I mean, anymore. It's hard to even find someone that ever gets put to death for anything. It takes forever because you have a, you know, over, and I'm glad that our, our, our justice system is set up to prevent people from just getting killed like that. But at some point, there has to be some type of rule that says this is the line that you will not cross. If you cross this line, you're dead. And it, that's the way Jesus Christ rules uh, when he comes back. So this is an obvious reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. But back in Revelation chapter 12, let's look at verse number 4. Here's another mark that identifies him. It says, And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered. Now we saw she's in pain, right? She wants to be delivered, and, and it is in pain. But now the, the dragon is standing right in front of her for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, if, if you've been in the delivery room with your wife, um, you understand that it's a very uh, controlled environment. You don't just have some yahoo, some orderly walking by, hey, what's going on in here? You know, it's very controlled. And you got to get suited up, or you got to wash your hands, or whatever. And, uh, and and why? Because it's a very, very important thing. It's the ultimate in humanity when when a, a new life comes into the earth. But here in the delivery room, we have this dragon. And the dragon, I mean, you can imagine this this dragon that's dripping saliva out of his mouth, and he's breathing, and he's nasty, and there's smoke coming out of his nostrils, and, and he's got these uh, this oily scales all over his body, and he's sitting there. And that is the picture that we're given. That's what Satan wanted to do to Jesus Christ as soon as he was born. And we find that in Matthew chapter 2. He slew all the children. The dragon, through Herod, went down to Bethlehem, and he slew all the children. 
He killed him. He wanted to destroy. He wanted to devour. By the way, he couldn't stop the delivery. So he decided he wanted to devour. He's going to do everything he can to erase Jesus Christ. If you are a new Christian, may I remind you, he couldn't stop the delivery. But he's going to try to devour. If you are a seasoned Christian, he may not have been able to devour you, but he is still trying to devour you. You've escaped up to this point, but he's trying to get you. So Satan here is, is standing, uh, waiting to devour the man-child. I want you to show you another one. Look at Luke chapter 4 in the life of, in the ministry of Jesus Christ. For 18 years, we don't hear much of him. But when he began his ministry, Satan amped it up, and he began to goad people. Verse 28. Luke four twenty eight. Here's Jesus. He's speaking about. Uh, he's going through and, and reading in, uh, in in the synagogue, and his word was with power. All of that. But look at verse number uh, twenty eight. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Does that sound like church to you? Everybody's mad. Well, I've been in places where people are mad at the preacher, but I don't ever see where everybody was filled with wrath. And here it is. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him under the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. You know who's behind this? The dragon. He's trying to destroy Jesus Christ before he can get to the cross and, 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 and bring redemption to mankind. And so watch what Jesus does. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Jesus Christ could turn invisible when he needed to. Now, the only other explanation is that he shoulders his way through this crowd and got through it. I don't think that's what it is. He had the ability to turn it on and turn it off. And so Satan is after him, and they would have thrown him off. Satan has this thing about, about throwing things off of high places. And so he is, you ever been on a bridge and had this urge to jump? You ever, you ever had that? You know, as I've watched... I don't know if it's a bad habit or what it is. Over time, I get more and more afraid of heights. Like, I, I, I was in a hotel with, I don't know how many stories. We're up on this thing, and I, I don't want to go near the edge. It's crazy. You ever, be dri- you ever be, drive down the road, and you're on a two-lane highway, and something says, you could jerk the wheel to the left? You say, well, what are you saying? I'm just saying, Satan's real, and our flesh is wicked. It's weird. Why, why do we eat our dead skin? Why, why do we do these habits that are, that are destructive and weird? Where does that come from? It doesn't come from God. You ever think about that? I know it's a weird thought. But, you know, you're thinking, what kind of a guy are you? I mean, in polite company, we're not allowed to you know, talk about things that, we, that, that bother us in, in the privacy of our own thoughts. But you ever, you ever wonder why you have these destructive patterns? They, they don't come from God. They don't, they don't come from good, fine, upstanding characteristics. And you'll find as you get older, you'll have destructive patterns. Here's the, here's the crazy thing about it is you won't think it's a destructive pattern. You'll relativize it and say, well, it's what my dad did. It, it, it's what, what we ever, all our family did that. 
Interesting thought, isn't it? Um, that, that was not in the notes, by the way. So he passes through. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Jesus is right in the middle of his ministry. Sometimes we don't uh, talk about these a whole lot. John chapter 8. Look at the last verse in John chapter 8, verse 59. It says, Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple And how did he hide himself? Going through the midst of them. You say, well, he was hiding behind a corner. How do you hide behind a corner and go through the middle of them? Right? Jesus was hiding. This is a supernatural protection from his father because Satan the dragon was trying to destroy Jesus in the middle of his ministry. You know, so Mr., you know, the invisible man, H.G. Wells talks about, and and so many, uh, it's a theme of so many movies and books, it's a real thing. It's a real thing that God allowed Satan, uh, allowed Jesus to, to do to protect him. Look at chapter 10, verse 30. John chapter 10, verse 30. <clears throat> Jesus says, I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Verse 39, therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. You can see how he's a type. Uh, David is a type of Christ in that Saul was hounding him, trying to pin him to the wall like a bug with a javelin. But David kept escaping out of his hand. And that's what Jesus did as well. Go to John chapter 18. There comes a point in the ministry of Christ where the, the, uh, there's a turn that's taken. Here he is in John 18. Jesus had spoken these words. He went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, which was Kidron, uh, where, where Elijah was, where was a garden in, into the which he entered and his disciples and Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Jesus, uh, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. I don't know what kind of uh, you know, military soldiers or cops these guys are, but they're, they're connected with the temple. So they're probably not the top-notch guys, but they're coming to arrest him. They come thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. How long has it been since you fell backward to the ground? And what knocked you backward? It takes a lot to lose your balance and fall backward. Now, you might fall sideways, You might fall forward, but to fall backward is to be really scared and to lose your balance. And all Jesus said was, I am he. Notice I am right in the middle of that phrase. All right, so he says, I am he. They fall backwards, and then notice, then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they're like, um, um, we need to really say the right word this time. So... They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And you can imagine they're flinching. And he doesn't knock them down. You know what happens? He allows himself to be taken. Jesus showed those men, he showed Judas, that he was directing this whole thing. Satan was trying to devour him. Satan is standing there goading these men on, saying, get him, get him, get him. I can taste it. It's so close. And Jesus said, yeah, I'm coming, but first... I want you to fall backwards on your rear end. 
and then I'll come. And so he does. Satan's over 4,000 years, he's been trying to wait for his chance. And so he goes with Pilate and, and the Roman soldiers and the Pharisees and the, the dragon is goading them all. Beat him, beat him, beat him. Hurt him. And, and they do. And they, they keep beating him and mocking him and scourging him and blaspheming him. And now the skin is, is coming off his body. And he's bloody and he's swollen and he's mangled. He's a mess, right? And all of that, Satan is right behind that. And he's breathing heavy and he's getting excited. He's ready for the kill. And they take Jesus and they nail him to a splintery wooden cross. And they pound nails into his hands and feet. And you know the dragon loved that. I've been wanting to do that for a long time. To get back at God. Right? I mean, he was worshiping God in the beginning. And now he's excited to see God put to death. He said, I'd never get there. You keep following that path of envy and pride and you'll get there. You know why people are so infatuated with there is no God and 666 and all that stuff? It's foolishness. But it's the same path that, that Satan himself has gone down. They're angry. Why are you angry at God? What did God ever do to you? So finally, he's there suspended between heaven and earth, hanging by his nails and by, by his hands and feet, by the nails. And he, he, he looks pitiful. He, he's a victim. And Satan said, I finally chewed him up. I finally devoured him. He's gone. And so then what happens? Then party central breaks out. You ever, you ever wonder why people party about things and wh what trips their trigger? I, I don't know what, what's going on here, but, but every demon, every devil, you know, he talks about in Psalm 22, the bulls of Bashan have beset me round about. And, and he said, the dogs have encompassed me. There was all kinds of weird creatures in the spirit realm that are getting really excited about the fact that Jesus Christ was dead. And they partied hard for three days and three nights. The dragon had devoured him. And they were saying, who is like unto the dragon? He brought, he brought the Son of God down, the one that was tormenting us. <laughs> How do you like it, Jesus? And they're putting it back on him. So three days, three nights after, somewhere there, Jesus is in the tomb, and there's a rumbling that starts to happen in the heart of the earth. Something's happening. And the demons are saying, what's going on? The dragon's saying, don't worry about it. I chewed him up. He's gone. And uh, so the, the dragon and the demons, they keep partying. But all of a sudden, it keeps getting louder and louder. They said, hey, let's go down and let's see what's happening in the heart of the earth. They go down in there and they descend you know, into the lower parts of the earth. They saw the great gulf there that was between hell and paradise where Abraham's bosom was. And they, they looked over there. They got down just in time. Now, this is all story. But it happened. It happened. I don't know exactly how. I'm just giving you an idea. They get down there and they, they look over and f they see in Abraham's bosom, just in time, they see Jesus standing in front of all these saints, all these people, and, and, and in a split second, they all shot up out of there. So they're, leave, they're leaving paradise and Jesus is taking them all up to heaven. But he stops real quick in Jerusalem and he goes back in and, uh, and he gets into his body again and he folds the napkin, makes sure it's nice and neat. His mother had trained him well. And he put it there at the head, and he put the, the cloth, and, he, and then he, he shoots up when they're out of there. He takes them up there, and he presents the, the blood to the Father. And what happens is, is 
Satan, Satan here now is, and by the way, he, on the way, he said, hey, angel, roll the stone away. I'll be back in just a minute. And so he goes. What happens is Jesus, when he ascends up there, he's letting the, the, the dragon know. He's letting every devil, every demon that's ever been around. He's letting everyone in heaven and in hell know. And he's about to let everyone on earth know that I am alive forevermore. And I will never again die. I have defeated hell, I've defeated death, and I've defeated the devil. So Satan is a defeated foe. We know this. The dragon tried to keep him from being born, but he couldn't. And when he was born, he tried to keep him, tried to devour him in his ministry. He couldn't do it. He tried to devour him all the way through the ministry, couldn't do it. He tried to keep him in the grave, but he couldn't keep him in the grave. He tried to make sure that he was never able to sit on the throne of his glory, but he couldn't do that. What happened? Notice, back in chapter 12, look at verse number 5 again. It says, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. There's the fulfillment. Jesus Christ ascended. The ascension is the indisputable proof of Satan's inability and failure to defeat the Lord Jesus Christ. He couldn't do it. Notice the colon there. And her child was caught up unto God. That colon in 12.5 is 33 and some half years of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was on this earth. He was born, and then he ascended. The message is what? The message is this great, powerful, fire-breathing, smoke-blowing red dragon who deceives and intimidates and dominates the entire world is no match for the only begotten Son of God who was born as a little baby in the city of Bethlehem. The man-child overcame the dragon. Now, what does that do for us? I'm going to read some verses to you. And you don't have to. I, I wrote them down there for you, so you don't have to turn to them. But listen to them. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you have the Spirit of God, if you're saved, you have the Spirit of God in you. And if you have the Spirit of God in you, you have the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. 1 John 4, 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Psalm 98, O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. 1 John 3, 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. What does the devil do? The devil is like Wile E. Coyote. It doesn't matter how many plans he comes up with, he's going to lose in the end. Everybody knows this. And it doesn't matter how many times he loses, he's going to keep coming back and trying. That is the devil. The wiles of the devil. Think about that when you watch Wiley Coyote. He's always going to come back. He's going to try. He's going to try. And you know what he's going to tell you? He's going to tell you, you're done. You can't. It's over with. There's no reason to hope. Your purpose in life is finished. You messed it up. You lost. You failed. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus Christ destroyed the works of the devil. And if he is in you, if you have the spirit of Christ, you don't have to worry about whether you're going to win someday. You've already won. 
He says in Colossians 2.15, he spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now, I don't like to see that in sports. Why? Because when a guy scores three points, you know, from 26 foot out, or a guy scores a touchdown when he's been training for it and, 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 and working towards that, I don't think it's worth him strutting around. But when the Son of God, who was beaten to death by the dragon, gets up out of the grave three days and three nights later, he has a right to strut around. And he did. And he did. He made a show of them openly. What does God think about the devil's power in your life? He laughs and he flexes his arm and kisses his bicep. That's what he does. He makes a show of the devil. Man, I don't know what he says, but it's not nice. He's making fun of him. He's criticizing him. He's cutting him down. He's saying, all day, baby. You say, well, not, not, not my Jesus. No, listen, your Jesus is a conqueror. You say, well, I don't feel like a conqueror. That's because you're relying on your own spirit. It's because you're listening to the lies of the devil. If you have the spirit of Christ in you, you are more than a conqueror. You are more than a How? Through him. Not in your own, not in the way that you were raised. Not in the way that you figure out the world. No. How many realize that all the, all the things that were gained to me, the Lord is eventually going to make us count them but loss. So what do we do? We glory in Christ. We glory in his accomplishments. You say, well, that's, that's, that's just, you know, <laughs> it's just religious mumbo-jumbo. I know. I can tell. In your life, it's just religious mumbo-jumbo. It has no power. It doesn't mean anything. Because you don't really believe in Jesus. You don't believe that he existed. You don't believe that it's really true. Let me ask you this question. It, it, why are you pretending? If Jesus is not the Son of God who rose from the dead and defeated the devil, then why are you pretending? If he is, then maybe you can tell your fears to take a chill pill, to sit back and calm down. Jesus beat death, hell, in the grave. What do you got? There's nothing you have that he's afraid of. He laughs at when the heathens say, we're going to beat you. He laughs. He's like, that is so good. I love it. Say it again. Say it again. Oh, man. Listen, guys, have you heard this? It's great. I love it. That's what he thinks about when people challenge his authority and his strength. Listen, don't listen to the lies of the devil. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. You know what the Lord did? The Lord took the, the most powerful weapon that Satan had, which was the fear of death, and he said, take your best shot. I'll tell you what. Oh, no, hold on. I'm going to let them beat me to a pulp. I'm going to let them nail me to a cross and put me to death. Okay, that's your biggest weapon? Okay, go for it. And I'm going to use that tool to exact the greatest victory that the universe has ever known. That's how powerful the Son of God is. And so in our lives, we think, well, yeah, but he can't help my depression. Are you kidding me? He created you. He created the body. He created the mind. He can't help you fix your addiction? No, here's your problem. The problem is not that God can't help you. He's already overcome the world. You don't believe that he can. You don't accept that you have the Spirit of God in you. And if you'll listen to him instead of your own spirit, you'll realize, 
I've got the victory already here. The victory is not somewhere down the road. The victory is now. You yield to the victory that's already been won. Read Romans 6 and 7 and 8. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So my encouragement to you tonight is to don't believe the lies. Don't believe the deception of the devil. Don't let him dominate you. Don't let him pester you and harass you like a fly. Recognize that the victory is found in Jesus Christ. Yes, our outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed day by day. You can win the victory in your life. How do I know that? Because Jesus already won the victory for you. What do we do? We claim that by faith. That's the victory. We say, God, I believe it. I don't feel it today, but I believe what you said above what I feel. And God will give you the victory. 